This morning we wrap up our series on heaven, certainly not the final time that we talk about heaven, but for this series we wrap up this five-part series that we have entitled The Kingdom of Heaven. And as we have been on a mission to do, we are not interested in understanding heaven from the basis of popular culture. We are not interested in understanding heaven according to what we hope or think it will look like or be like. We have been dedicated to understanding heaven from the foundations and the perspective of Scripture. What does Scripture have to say? say about the kingdom of heaven? What does scripture have to say about this place where we will spend all of eternity? Last Sunday, we looked at Revelation chapter 22, and it was in Revelation chapter 22 that we saw what heaven will be like. What will the new heaven and the new earth be like? What exactly will we experience? And what we saw in Revelation chapter 22 is that it is a return to all that which was lost. That to understand Revelation 22, you first have to understand what was lost in Genesis 1 and 2. That history begins in a garden, but it ends in Revelation 22 in a garden city. That paradise that was lost in Genesis 3 with the fall is paradise regained for all those that place their hope and trust in Jesus. What will we experience in the new heaven and the new earth? We will experience God and creation and life as it was meant to be experienced. But I want to answer this question this morning as we wrap up this series. What exactly will we do? Pastor, this is a long time you're talking about. All of eternity. What exactly will I do for all of eternity in the new heaven and the new earth? Let's look together at Revelation chapter 21, the last two verses, verse 26 and 27, and then continue and reread from last week, Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. This is the very word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, delivered as a vision to the Apostle John, to a culture in chaos, to a people that were longing for a hope beyond this world. Revelation chapter 21, verse 26. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God, and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And this is the word of God that is preached to you on this Lord's Day. Amen. In 1921, a raucous debate erupted on the floor of the United States Senate. 
It was a debate between two U.S. senators. And the debate ended by one of the senators looking at the other senator and saying, well, then you can go to hell. Strong words. With that, the senator that had just been told to go to hell looked up at the president of the Senate, who at that time was the vice president of the United States, Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge, being a student of parliamentary procedure, was asked, can he say that to me in the Senate, on the floor of the Senate? Can another senator tell me to go to hell? And Calvin Coolidge looked down at his notes and studied his book and said, hmm, I checked the book, but he does have the right to tell you to go to hell, but you don't have to go. <laughs> Case closed. We laugh. But if there's one thing I pray you have taken away from this series, is there is a real place called heaven, but there is a real place called hell. And I pray if there is one takeaway from this series the last five weeks is this, that because of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, you don't have to go to hell. But because of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, you can have the promise both now and forever that you will spend eternity before the very face of God. So what exactly will we be doing for all of eternity? Let's study Revelation 21 and 22 together. Well, the first thing that we see here that we will be doing for all of eternity is found in verse 26. In verse 26, John tells us that we will enjoy the fruit of our redemptive labor. Verse 26 says the first thing that we'll be doing in eternity is enjoying the fruit of our redemptive labor. What does John say precisely in verse 26? He says that he sees a vision and that they will bring into it, he sees a vision of heaven and that they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. What in the world is the glory and the honor of the nations? I've read this verse my entire Christian life, but never truly understood what John was referring to here until I studied it. And what John is referring to is all of the glory of the redemptive labor of the church this side of heaven will actually not go up in flames, but will actually be carried into the new heavens and the new earth. This is phenomenal. This means that when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at the end when he's talking about the glorious resurrection of the physical bodies of those that are in Christ, when he says, fear not, that you do not labor in vain, what he is saying is all of the things that we do this side of heaven in the name of Jesus Christ is not for waste. It is not all lost. What John sees is those things that have been done in the name of Jesus, this side of heaven, those that reflect the glory, the glory of God being carried into somehow the new heavens and the new earth. This is a phenomenal reality that actually we will get to enjoy the fruit and the results of our redemptive labor in heaven. Isn't that amazing? See, this is the motivation for why we do what we do. 
that sometimes we wonder this side of heaven, am I making a difference? Is this all for nothing? Is the work that God has called me to do and on his behalf, in, on behalf of the kingdom of God, is it all for waste? Is it all for nothing? And John says, absolutely not. Paul says, absolutely not. You do not labor in vain. It's an incredible thing. You see, here we do not believe in Revelation when we see the picture of things being burned up. We do not believe in annihilationism. But what we believe is the fire is the refiner's fire of God. That actually what is being burned up is not all things, but what is being burned up is all things impure, all things that do not reflect the glory of God that have been fashioned and made here on earth. All things that look like the city of man, those things will perish, but all things that look and reflect the city of God, those things will remain forever. Isn't that good news? That what you do here on earth in the name of Jesus is not in vain. It is not a waste. That's why we always ask the question here, how do heaven people live on earth? Jesus, after all, didn't come and said, I've come to take you all up to heaven with me now. But instead, Jesus comes and he says, this is my mission, to declare to you that the kingdom of God is where? At hand. See, the mission of the people of God, we sang it earlier in the service, is to do what? To bring heaven to earth. That is how heaven people live. Because we realize that building heaven here on earth is not a waste of time. But it's giving our people and giving the world a glimpse of what is to come. That's why we have a fountain outside of our church. Dr. Kennedy, when he designed the church, did not want a fountain outside so we would look like a park. He wanted a fountain outside because he believed that we as the people of God are to take the living water of God out into the streets, out into the communities and say to a dry and thirsty world, we have water that will never leave you thirsty again. And so when you pass by the fountain this morning, be reminded of your calling to bring heaven to earth, that your redemptive labor will not be in vain, but we will get to experience it and enjoy it for all of eternity. And this is good news. So the first thing that we see here is that we will spend all of eternity experiencing the benefits and the glory of our redemptive labor. This is what led the famous composer Johann Sebastian Bach. On top every piece that he composed, he wrote these words, Soli Deo Gloria, to alone God be the glory. What led a man like Bach to write those words atop every piece that he composed? It was the reading of Revelation 21 because he believed that his work would continue in. The work that was written and composed to the glory of God will echo in all of eternity. And that is the good news for us, that the work that we put our hands and minds to here on earth, our redemptive labor echoes in all of eternity. And that is good news. But the second thing that we see here is not only we will we spend eternity enjoying the fruit of our redemptive labor, but in verses 3 and 5 of Revelation 22, we see work as God originally intended. Work will be restored as it was originally intended. You see, often in the church and often in Christianity, we think heaven is an escape. 
escape from work. But actually, heaven is not an escape from work. Heaven is an escape from the burdens and the curse of work. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, we see with the fall of humanity and sin entering in the world that work will now forever be accursed. We are told in Genesis chapter 3 that no longer will they work and it will be pleasure. No longer will they work and it will be considered a pure joy, but instead they will work and it will be by the sweat of their brow and thorns and thistles will be produced from the land and now the work will be cursed. Work will be burdensome, but that's not what God intended, did he? You see, before the fall, before sin entered the world... Genesis chapter 1 begins like this. In the beginning, God worked. In the beginning, God created. And then it says God separated. And then it says God made. You see, the image and the vision we see of God in Genesis chapter 1 is a God who works, a God who creates. And then he gets done, and the crown jewel of his creation is who? You and me. He creates man in his own image. And what does he do? Rest forever. No, he puts him to work. It says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, that he takes humanity and he puts them in the garden to do what? To work. You see, the design for humanity is to work. The problem is not work. The problem is that we live under the burden and the curse of work. But what does it say in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3? No longer, look at it with me, no longer will there be anything accursed because the throne of God and the Lamb are in it. And then it says this, his servants will worship him. In some translations, worship is also translated as serve him. So picture this, the new heavens and the new earth, there's no longer the curse that existed in Genesis chapter 3, but instead it says, and this is good news for somebody like me, there will not be any idle time in heaven. It says continually, we will as his servants worship him. We will serve him. It means there's no retirement in heaven. It means we will be put to work. We will have jobs and vocations and calling, but the good news is our jobs and our calling and our work will no longer be tainted anymore by the curse that originated in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Now what's interesting in verse 3, it says worship. We will serve him as his servants by worshiping him. Does that mean we sing a hymn that has a never-ending chorus? What in the world does John mean we will worship him? Well, here's the problem with worship in our culture. We have turned worship into the hour on Sunday morning where we gather and pray and sing. But that was never God's design of worship. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, we are told this, that Adam and Eve work. Do you know what the Hebrew word for work is? Avadah. But in Numbers chapter 3, it says the priest goes into the temple and worships. You know what the word for worship is in the Old Testament? Avadah. All throughout the Old Testament, the same word for work and worship are the same. Avadah. And certainly that's what Paul understands worship to be in Romans chapter 12. Don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? This is your spiritual act of 
worship. You see, the Old Testament and New Testament never tell us worship is the one hour on Sunday morning, but worship is a whole way of life. And so when we see the servants here in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, serving God by worshiping him, it means that their entire life and all of their work and all of their service will now be, because of the absence of the curse, pure worship of God. It means all of our work will eventually be sacred. No longer the, the divide between sacred and secular work. No longer people sitting out there in the pews on Sunday morning saying, Rob's the only one that does sacred work, but I just simply do secular, secular ordinary work. All work is sacred. And that promise will finally be fulfilled once and for all in the new heavens and the new earth. We will have jobs and we will work and we will serve. And no longer will our work be in vain. But also we see here, not only in verse 3, will work be restored into what God originally intended, but it says in verse 5 that our original calling and purpose will be restored as well in work. In verse 5, it ends by saying, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, I thought Jesus reigns forever and ever. It says, no, you will reign forever and ever. That will be your work, to reign forever and ever. And it begs the question, what in exactly are we reigning over? Well, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we're given what the church calls the cultural mandate or the creation mandate, where God creates humanity in his image and in his glory. And this is what he says, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And that would be the original purpose of humanity. This would be our work, that everything we set our hands to would be to bring the world under submission, that we would shape the world and shape creation to look like the glory of God. But what happened? Sin entered the world, and no longer do we shape culture, but culture shapes us. No longer do we shape creation and the world according to the image of the city of God, but the world shapes us. See, what has happened because of the fall is the reversal where the world reigns over us. You hear the expression, the world is killing me. It is crushing me. This is the reason why. But the good news for those that are in Christ is that in heaven we will restore our rightful place as those who reign on behalf of the king. No longer will culture shape us, but we will shape culture. No longer will the world have dominion over us, but we will return to our rightful places as agents and ambassadors of the king of kings and lord of lords. We are a preview kingdom. That's why we here at Coral Ridge are committed to equipping culture-shaping Christians because we want to send a message to the world that this is the way it is to be. This is what the world will eventually look like under the reign of our Father. This is my Father's world. So secondly, we see work. We will have jobs. We will have occupations. We will have things that we are called to do forever and ever, but minus the curse, restored to our rightful place of having dominion over this world that God has created once and for all. But lastly, we will serve with a new motivation. You see, all of our work and all of our service today, because of the fall, is always done with the wrong motivation. And what's that motivation? The motivation is this, to make a name for yourself. 
You see, all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, we read about this story called the Tower of Babel. And why did they build the the Tower of Babel and the city of Babel? It says to make a name for themselves. And from Genesis chapter 11, all throughout history, we have been doing just that. Serving and working in order to make a name for ourselves. If I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. What a motivation to work and serve. And so forever from the Genesis chapter 11, we have been working and serving like slaves to try to earn ourselves a name, to to give ourselves an identity, to, to be someone out of fear of being no one. But here in verse four, it tells us that we will no longer need to serve and work for a name. I touched on this briefly last week, but in verse 4, here's the new motivation. It says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. You see, the promise of heaven for all those who believe in Jesus Christ is that you no longer have to serve and work to gain a name for yourself. But on the basis of another man's work, Jesus, his name will be on your forehead. You will have the very name of God. And that instead of working and serving for a name, you will be working and serving because you have the name. The name that is above all names. You see, this is the biggest difference between the city of God and the city of man. The city of man works to get a name. The people of the city of God work because they have the name that is above all names. What a glory. What an amazing promise, a new name, a new identity, a new purpose, a new calling that awaits those that are called into this city, the city of God. You see, we go through life lost, trying to find ourselves, whatever that means. We go through life lost, not wondering who we are or what we've become. But God's promise in the new heavens and the new earth is that we will work on behalf of the king who gives us his name. This is our strength for today and our bright hope for tomorrow. I want you to listen to me. And I want you to listen to me very clearly as we wrap up this series. There is a king. And there is a kingdom And the king calls us to surrender. After all, he's the king. But what's amazing about this king is this king says, I don't ask you to surrender before I first surrender myself. You see, what makes this king unlike any other king is he says, I come and I call you to surrender only because I first surrendered all. And in light of that great surrender, the king who came down to lay down his life, the king who came down to die, to only to be raised again from the dead, is the king of kings and lord of lords who stretches out his hands this morning and says, it's not enough just to hear about me this morning, but I want you to come. And Jesus himself invites you to come this morning. The king who invites you, who has set the table, who has prepared the feast, 
and says, if any man comes to me, I will accept him as my very own. That although a man dies, if he has Jesus Christ, he will live again and live forever and ever. If we confess with our mouth this morning that Jesus is Lord and believe it in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. The one who surrendered all calls you this morning to surrender your life. Ruthanna Metzger is a famous singer. She had the privilege one time of singing at a wedding that she called Top Shelf. A Top Shelf wedding. And she was invited to the reception that followed out in Seattle. And she was so excited. Her husband and her got invited to this wedding and to this reception. And she knew it would be exceptional. It was on the top floor of Seattle's Columbia Tower, the northwest tallest skyscraper. And she said when she walked in, it was more than she could ever imagine. There was waiters wearing snappy black tuxedos, offering luscious hors d'oeuvres and exotic beverages. She said the atmosphere was one of great taste and sophistication. But then a gentleman with a bound book greeted us as we reached the top stairs. May I have your name, please? She said, I'm Ruthanna Metzger. This is my husband, Roy. The gentleman searched and said, ma'am, I'm not finding your name. Would you spell it, please? And I spelled it slowly and clearly, Ruthanna said. And searching throughout the book, the gentleman looked up and said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I, I still can't find your name. Ruthanna said, oh, there must be some mistake. I'm, I'm Ruthanna Metzger. I'm the, I'm the wedding singer. I sang for this wedding. And the gentleman calmly answered, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done in your life. Without your name in this book, you can't attend the reception. I looked around the room and I thought briefly of running to the groom and trying to plead my case. He would surely let me in at that point. But with hundreds of guests on the stairs already behind us and every place at the table already assigned with a name tag on it, according to the thoughtful choices of the bride and groom, I just stood there and I was speechless. We were then led to the service elevator, stepped in, and the waiter pushed G for garage. My husband didn't say a word, nor did I. Finally, my husband reached over and silently, with his hand on my arm, said, Sweetheart, what happened back there? Ruthanna said, Then I remembered. When the invitation arrived for the reception, I was so busy, I never bothered to reply. I was the singer, after all. I made a name for myself, but nobody would let me in. Brothers and sisters, there is an invitation, and it is clear. There is an invitation that is offered to you this morning for all those that are desperate, for all those who are weary and heavy laden, but the only thing that remains is that you would respond to the invitation. And that invitation is offered to you freely, not because you have made a name for yourself, but because Jesus has given you a new name. That today, you can be born a John, but you can die as a Christian. That you can be born as a Susan, but die with the name Christian. You can be born a lily 
but thy, a child of God. All I can do for you this morning is plead with you like I have never pleaded before. The Apostle Paul said, I plead with you to be reconciled with God. I want you to be there. Jesus says at the end of Revelation, his words are this, I am coming soon. As I said last week, I will say it again. I pray that there is an urgency not only in the room, but there is an urgency in your heart this morning to come, to surrender, to surrender all to the one who surrendered everything so that you might live forever with him. Amen?